1: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Cole Roscombe, who's Associate Professor of Architectural History at the University of Hong Kong, and he'll be talking about his new book, Improvised City, Architecture and Governance in Shanghai, 1843 to 1937, which was published in 2019 by University of Washington Press. Few places tell the story of modern China in the way that the city of Shanghai does, for not only is it today the PRC mainland's main financial hub and centre of commerce, but it's also among the most famous former sites in which the foreign semi-colonisation of China unfolded, a history which is, of course, so important to the tale the present-day Communist Party tells about itself and the nation. If this means that Shanghai has a somewhat layered and contested identity, then Cole Roskam's book Improvised City shows, that, so, shows us that such contestation has always been a feature of the city's existence. Roskam's uniquely revealing account of the period from the 1840s birth of colonial Shanghai up to the 1930s Japanese invasion narrates the metropolis's multiple pasts through a staunchly material lens, focusing on town planning, public spaces, monumental buildings, and more everyday architecture too. Much more than an account told from an elevated or detached vantage point, Roscombe's book takes us down to ground level, evoking the movement, the open boulevards and narrow lanes of Shanghai, as it took shape under the often competing influences of Chinese, British, French, American, and other governors and architects. Such an intimate portrait shows us convincingly that this place envisioned by the colonists as an arena for free marketeering and rational governance often ended up being anything but, giving modern Shanghai a tangled legacy, which arguably plays a role right up to the present. But the author himself is here to tease out some of these tangles. So I'll say Cole Roscom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ed. I really appreciate uh, your invitation and I'm happy to be here. Well, it's fantastic to have you to talk about what I think is a uh, particularly kind of interesting subject, uh, given what's going on in many Chinese cities today. Hmm. Um, But before we jump into the book itself, uh, perhaps I'll ask you initially about your background and how you came in to be uh, interested in architecture in Shanghai and governance and these questions which the book deals with. Sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I began to study architecture and uh, Mandarin Chinese as an undergraduate uh, in a small liberal arts college, Connecticut College in the United States. And it was through my experience in both studying art and architectural history as well as Chinese that I, I came to uh, complete a senior honors thesis on 20th century Chinese architecture. And so I suppose that's really where the seeds of the project lie. Um, mm-hmm. I worked for several years and traveled to China and then ultimately returned to graduate school to complete a PhD uh, in uh, the Department of History of Art and Architecture uh, at Harvard University. And it was
1: there that I uh, completed the dissertation upon which this this book is based. I see. So, you, I mean, you began in a kind of architecture specific uh, field or at least with with Chinese, too. But what was it that, I mean, made you, I guess, move away from the possibility of, say, practicing architecture into studying it uh, as, a, as a historical, um, I guess, uh, practice?
2: Well, I, I suppose I, I need to be honest and admit, first, my own limitations as a designer were a factor. Um, I, right. I, I, did, I, I did enjoy uh, studying architecture and also... Had an, uh, several internships with with a few firms when I was in college, and I realized that I i i, much, I very much more enjoyed um, reading and writing about architecture than actually designing it myself. Um, and uh, the the richness of of China's own architectural history was also incredibly um, attractive to me. And uh, I had spent a semester abroad in China in 1997, which is really the first time that I also visited Shanghai. And um, it was at that point that I um, really began to, I suppose, dig into the the history of yeah China's urban fabric and, and trying to understand exactly the role played by architecture and buildings in the in, in the country's uh,
1: past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, the actual subject of the book and the focus on Shanghai—this was something that uh, came through your your doctoral work—is that right? That's right.
2: Yeah, I um. I, I wanted to, to work on Shanghai in part because uh, for all of the, the uh, ample existing literature on Shanghai, um, I found that much of it focused on a few key sites or a few key building types within the city. Um, m- most of, of Shanghai's architectural history is told through the history of the Bund or um, through uh, housing such as the, the iconic Lilong um, fabric within the city. Um, but there was there seemed to be very little engagement or analysis of what could be termed i guess civil architecture or public architecture the kind of architecture of governance and that may be in part because it's a complex story to tell um, there were so many different vested interests in the city uh, particularly over its nearly 100 year history as a as a treaty port um, but it also speaks to I think the the generalization that Shanghai was first and and foremost a commercial entrepot. And in in essence, that there, that there were no politics happening uh, on the ground, so to speak, but of course there were. And of course it was a a very politically charged place. And as, as my, the argument of my, of my book goes, um, architecture was very much contributing to and participating within that, um, those political tensions and the,
1: the efforts to govern the city. Yeah, absolutely. I think that kind of is the the message that comes out so strongly from the book, which, yeah, does, I think, manage to take on what you rightly point out is a pretty daunting task, bringing together the multiple uh, interests and, and the influences, um, as I mentioned in the intro there, the French and the British and the American, as well as, you know, the uh, Qing uh, and subsequently Republican governments who were... Um, Uh, you know playing a role in 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 managing uh, the Chinese city and also interacting with these foreign powers and and I think all of that comes through uh, brilliantly well in a way that brings out completely to me at least astonishing uh, aspects of of what the city looked like and how it how it works that I should add that the book is supplemented by a really rich array of architectural designs and drawings and plans as well as uh, historical photographs um, and some contemporary ones too and um yeah so i think uh, i think the kind of uh, task that you've taken on there to enhance our understanding of things beyond the beyond the bund and the like is uh, is wonderfully executed um but we'll jump in uh, then perhaps to the actual introduction uh in which you kind of outline more of uh, the arguments and the kind of projects that you're taking on here um i guess uh, as as much out of curiosity as anything else um i wonder if you could just say something about what what the city was before Uh, some of these kind of foreign colonial powers arrived. Uh, What was the nature of Shanghai as a Qing dynasty metropolis or or walled city or what was going on there?
2: Yeah, um, Shanghai was a very active port for trade um, between different parts of China and East and Southeast Asia long prior to the uh, advent of the treaty port system, in fact. And, And actually one of the reasons that it was so attractive to British merchants looking to expand their trade, particularly opium up along the Chinese coast was that existing trade activity and the potential for um, exchange with, with Europe. And uh, one, one key text uh, that covers this history very well is um, a book by Linda Cook Johnson called From Market Town to Treaty Port. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in that book, she actually uh, really covers the entire development of Shanghai from a small regional market town into the the, the quote unquote international treaty port that it became. Um, but there were several quintessential features of the city's built environment that were there long prior to European arrival that subsequently then played a very important role in the, the um, development of the European sections of the city um, foremost among them maybe being the the, the city wall, which was initially mm-hmm. built in the mid 16th century um, 1554 to Guard Against um, Occupation and Invasion, Pillaging by Japanese Pirates. And that is, uh, you know, Shanghai being a port was, of course, vulnerable to that kind of activity. And so those vulnerabilities would become, I think, inscribed within the city's fabric, again, long prior to British arrival and
1: the uh, signing of the Nanjing Treaty um, that Mm -hmm. established the city as a treaty port. Mm-hmm. And you kind of then chart the, uh, I guess, uh, incorporation of the city and, and this area into the, the Treaty Port regime um, and say, I think, in the introduction, some pretty interesting things about the that what the Treaty Port system was as a sort of administrative or a governance-based artifact in a Chinese context. Um, could you say a bit more about this uh, kind of um, how the Treaty Port system sat uh, within existing kind of legal frameworks and 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 governance practices uh, in Qing China,
2: yeah. So this was one of the challenges that I faced when I was um, when I tackled the the project as a dissertation and then as a book. Um, because there was so much written about Shanghai, I, I had to you know really look at identifying topics and periods of the city's history that had not been covered. And I found that one of them, one of the periods, was this initial arrival of. Uh, British and and American and then French merchants and other merchants from uh, around the world into the city and how that arrival uh, kind of materialized in, in space, in architectural form. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that I tried to understand that was within the context of the legal system that was established, uh, the extraterritorial uh, rights that were extended to uh, British, and then subsequently other, other merchants of other countries uh, and territories around the world within China. And essentially what extraterritoriality um, cemented for these non-Chinese merchants was uh, an impunity or a freedom from existing Qing law. And so that, that state of exceptionality... Um, was very interesting to me, um, particularly when I, when I partnered it or thought of it in relationship to architecture, that Shanghai was never a a colony per se. China was never colonized in in the traditional sense of the word. It was, one could argue that the Qing dynasty was a, was a colonial power or an imperial power, but that's of course, very sensitive, uh, to Mm -hmm. the, to the party today. Um, but, uh, Shanghai and China historically were kind of understood as "quote unquote" semi-colonial um, entities. That is, there mm. were some some aspects of the of the treaty ports governance that 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 took on the 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 kind of operative appearance of a colony, but in other ways, it, it was it was not typically traditionally colonial. Um, and that that was something I also wanted to push up against. I I I, I didn't really find this this term the semi-colony or the semi-colonial to really be a, an effective um, term of analysis in a way. I, I didn't know what it opened up, uh, even though it's, of course, a, been a tried and true term, uh, again, used to describe the the history of, of Shanghai from for most of the 20th century, um, mm. used by figures like Sun Yat-sen and, and Mao Zedong even to describe this particular historical period in, in China. Uh, and so... Mm. The, the term that I kept circling around, again, was this uh, this idea of extraterritorial, extraterritoriality, and it's understood primarily, again, as a legal term, and uh, but also very much comes out of the Qing Empire's efforts to integrate uh, what was happening as a result of the first opium war within the, the existing Qing tribute system, which were these series of social and diplomatic practices that very much dictated imperial China's um, relationship with 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 other parts of the non-chinese world so mm-hmm. um i suppose a, a long-winded response to your to your question was that um extraterritoriality in some ways comes out of existing qing uh a precedent and law in some ways and it became a, a kind of useful um concept for me to think about how the architectural history of that period might also be understood that there was a there was an effort on the part of the Qing government to maintain a certain degree of, of segregation or separation of, of mm. Chinese and non-Chinese residents. Mm. Um, but then, of course, over time, that separation took on uh, uh, new and increasingly um, destabilizing dimensions.
1: Right, right. Now, I think that is a sort of really compelling new way of looking at, or at least to me, new. possibly it's been done elsewhere, but um, it was very yeah, uh, interesting to see Extraterritoriality in the treaty port idea, seen from the perspective of existing Qing structures, and uh, you know, not not just something that suddenly appeared out of nowhere and, and didn't you know have any any context or any kind of deeper roots. Um, the source. I'm
2: Just in, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but just to just to be be true to my sources here, there's a fantastic book by um, Par Christopher Castle called "Grounds of Judgment: Extraterritoriality." Um, and imperial power in nineteenth-century China and Japan, and his his book is very much uh, offers a, a legal history of extraterritoriality and the establishment of the international mixed court in Shanghai, and that mm-hmm. that was a very useful text for me to think about how something like extraterritoriality might have um, might have taken on uh, spatial and, and architectural dimensions.
1: Right, and 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 I guess it is that kind of architectural novelty and and newness and and the differences, the very notable contrasts between architectural styles and practices in the city that subsequently developed after this European arrival uh, in the in the mid nineteenth century, that makes the contrast between what was there before and what subsequently followed seem so stark, and in some ways, I guess, seems so um, contextless, if you like. Um, but in in terms of what role architecture was actually playing here mm-hmm. and and how you conceived of the relationship between the, the the practices of design and projection and architecture um and the actual governance and the power regimes that were going on in practice i mean how did you conceive of that 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 relationship was it just that you know big buildings represent big powerful colonists i mean clearly <laughs> that's a, a very very simplistic way of putting it but yeah what is uh, what was your what was your kind of take on how these things interacted.
2: Yeah. Monumentality was certain, certainly part of it. I mean, there was a physical, um, a physical dimension to the, to the scale and the size of European buildings um, being constructed. But, but yes, yeah, I I tried to kind of dig beyond that and offer more than just, just a kind of physical or aesthetic uh, study of the city. And um, one of, one of the ways I um, began to think about architecture was, very much as this anticipatory discipline that there there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty about Shanghai and really the whole treaty port system as a kind of viable enterprise. I mean, it, it in some ways was, um, you know, an unprecedented new uh, governing structure imposed upon China uh, beginning in, in 1843. And, and so, The fact that so little was actually known um, and uh, about the about the 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 potential uh, development of the treaty port system, the future that was completely unknown, architecture historically has has kind of relished and and enthusiastically engaged with those unknowns. Right? We look Mm. we look to designers to to show us the future in a way, Um, Mm. and so some of the first architectural projects within. Shanghai um proposed by engineers many of whom were associated with uh you know Freemasonry uh and were were uh, arriving in Shanghai from places like Guangzhou and Hong Kong that they they were very much the kind of visionaries who uh stabilized this new enterprise um in in physical ways but also in procedural ways by through the practice of architecture and over time um, in the book, I trace the, um, emergence of building codes, which are, um, of course, very exploitative and, um, uh, dismissive of the Chinese population, uh, within the city. And that, that, that those are, those offer a kind of mode of governance in a way they offer a mode of control that needs mm. to be taken seriously. Um, mm. but at Absolutely. the same time, yeah, even, and, and even as architecture is, is, you know, um, uh, attempting or or making an effort to kind of stabilize this enterprise, there's still this element of, of improvisation, which comes out of the, the book title. And that, that actually, that notion of an improvised city comes from a direct quote that I found in my research. I think I, I embedded it in chapter two. Um, at one point I asked the editor of the book, whether I, the, 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 the book should begin with that quote, but she thought that it was, it was a, a useful Easter egg to kind of hide (laughs) uh, to hide within the book and hope that people might get to it. But it's, it's in reference to this moment in 1863 where a group of British landowners or land renters are uh, writing Frederick Bruce, who was the British envoy to Beijing um, at that point in time. And um, 1863 is, is, is a, is a very, uh, eventful moment in the city's history the taiping rebellion is 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 raging and the tens of thousands of chinese refugees essentially flood into the british settlement which previous to that point in time had been segregated and with mm-hmm. this kind of this uh sudden integration of the british settlement uh several of the merchants begin to um being enterprising capitalists that they are they they uh build a a series of of hastily constructed tenement houses to support this new population. And Mm. it it very much transforms what the British settlement was and what it was expected to be. Suddenly it is this integrated uh, uh, district, if you were, within Shanghai. And so this group of, um, of, of land renters write to Bruce to describe Shanghai as an improvised city, as a city very much where normal activities associated with municipal development and, and physical construction take place very quickly and, uh, and become very expensive. And so I was mm. really interested in that idea too, that what we understand of as kind of decades, if not centuries long processes of the building of a community, so to speak, or the construction of a kind of civic sphere, um, was being sped up and improvised, if you will, in Shanghai, um, Mm. And so that became a, a very evocative uh, image for me, and helped me help me kind of uh, formulate some of my ideas and arguments.
1: Right, and to what extent did that kind of improvisatory nature of how the city came together stem from the fact that there were so many different, uh, simultaneously occurring projects going on there? You know, backed by different powers. I mean, um, I guess I also hadn't fully appreciated the sort of geographical distribution of where the Chinese city was uh, in relation to uh, the French concession, mm-hmm. the very well-known area of Shanghai next to us, and then the international settlement, which is kind of British and American area. And, and then, of course, there were Russian and, uh, and, and, and latterly, I guess, Japanese influences and, and many others too. I mean, is, it was the improvisation, as you see it, partly a product of this kind of multiplicity of different uh, regimes of governance and indeed of, of town planning. I, I see it
2: that way. I see, yeah, I would I would uh, understand this idea of improvisation as, as being a much broader kind of category to describe the the loose, um, anxious cosmopolitanism of the place that very much spoke not only to the diversity of the city's international population, but also its Chinese population. Uh, people mm. from all over the, uh, the Qing Empire uh, coming to the city, working within the city, traveling through the city, um, exchanging goods, buying and selling um, uh, products that 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 kind of improvised quality was 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 very much specific to the diversity and the complexity of the place. Um, but the way I suppose that the original quote is understanding this idea of improvisation is is uh, in in response to the actual procedure by which municipalities take shape. That the actual mm. governance, the administration, the construction of public buildings, um, that all of that uh, becomes uh, much hastier and, and much more spontaneous in a within uh, within a, within a, a physical, uh, cultural, economic setting like Shanghai. That's the maybe the third dimension to this is the the economic nature of the place was such that this was very much a a, a place that was. Um, intended for free market enterprise. Um, mm. The desire on the part of British merchants to, to, to settle in Shanghai in the, in the first place was in part in response to what they felt were the undue confines of their, their rights as merchants to trade uh, with, with Chinese merchants in Guangzhou and in Canton. And they felt very much restricted, uh, legally restricted, but also physically restricted by the factory system in Guangzhou. And shanghai was and the other uh treaty ports were expected to to kind of remedy that situation so that's the other dimension here
1: sure and we can perhaps jump in a bit later into whether or not this actually realized itself as a project and, and you know the role of i guess yeah free trade as a sort of ideological cudgel through which to beat uh, you know <laughs> potentially resistant uh colonial subjects um, on the part of the British. Um, But we'll go into, I think, uh, the kind of body of the book at this point, and and chapter one, where we really get quite immediately down to the level of of detail, which really is woven throughout the entire uh, volume, Uh, looking at the actual architectural forms of some of these uh, sort of newly extraterritorial buildings, as you're conceiving of them. Um, And I was particularly interested, uh, you mentioned just now Canton, Guangzhou, and Um, These kind of more restricted quarters in which trade was occurring with uh, China um, before the foundation of Shanghai's uh, international settlements and so on. Um, And there were architectural forms that were sort of transferred and and there were precedents for some of how the buildings were designed uh, in the the newly built uh, urban space of Shanghai uh, because there was already some precedent set in Guangzhou and also other colonial ports of, of, uh, European empire. So could you say something about some of these architectural features, uh, of buildings that started to spring up once the, uh, kind of treaty port system had been established? Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, yeah, you're, you're referencing, I, I think building types, uh, such as the go down or the warehouse, uh, and verandas and mercantile compounds, which all began to take shape in Shanghai very, very shortly after the, um, the establishment of, of the treaty port. Um, the first British merchants being to arrive in November 1843, uh, traveling from Guangzhou and Hong Kong, uh, Macau, and uh, bringing with them building expertise that had been honed in Southeastern China, uh, as well as other parts of Southeast Asia and even um, British controlled uh, India. Um, so hmm. these are very much um, spaces that have been crafted and, uh, refined over time in the name of a kind of, you know, imperial, uh, uh, capitalistic project. Um, warehouses were expected were, were early in standardized building types that were expected to protect goods, um, and to ensure goods ag- against fire and against water damage. Um, and, uh, they became early important architectural objects that reassured investors back home in London, for example, of the, um, the security and the safety of, of, uh, of an investment. Mm. Uh, verandas were, uh, porch like structures that extended beyond the main body of, a of, a um, a merchant's house. These were also, I should say, these were homes that were also offices. So they were very much sort of per- combinations of personal and professional spaces that took shape as a kind of large uh, Two-story compounds, if you will, with multiple structures on them, um, and verandas were useful um, for several reasons. The first was they offered a kind of liminal space uh, from the outside into the inside, a kind of semi-public zone uh, where uh, British merchants could interact with, uh, say, uh, Chinese servants or with other with Chinese businessmen. Um, they also served a climat- an obvious climactic purpose. They kept the house cool in the summer and protected the foundation from rain and from rot. Shanghai uh, can be, uh, it's humid throughout the year, but um, can be quite wet and damp in the winter. And so something like a veranda was offered a, a useful, uh, protective structure against those kinds of environmental conditions.
1: Mm, mm.
2: And um, and then, of course, yeah, they, so both of those then fall within the broader uh, of umbrella of the, the compound itself, which, again, as I mentioned, consisted of, of office space and um, personal spaces like bedrooms, kitchens, dining rooms, um, studies, uh, kitchens, which are often located behind the main house and usually connected with something like a, 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 a roofed walkway. Where Chinese servants could go out and cook, and then bring the food into the compound itself. So these were quite quite complex spaces
1: that that performed on a variety of different levels. Mm, mm. And they sort of still seem, despite the fact that I guess, as you say, what uh, merchants were notably looking for up and uh, further north than Guangzhou was a, a freedom to operate in a kind of greater level of openness than was available to them in in Guangzhou. That, that there was still a kind of slightly almost defensive atmosphere about them, would you say? I mean, the, the kind of the idea of a compound, the idea of a sort of closed unit of space um, still seems like it had a kind of almost self-isolating quality about it. Would that be accurate? Yeah, there is, there is a fortress-like uh, appearance to
2: some of these projects that's notable. Um, and they certainly also represent, I think, a response to uh, where merchants were living in um, Guangzhou, which was the... These, this, uh, what were called the 13 factories, which were a series of kind of uh, essentially row like compounds um, that extended backwards. So they were very narrow, but quite uh, deep. And those spaces were shared and subdivided by various merchants over time and became increasingly congested um, by the mid 19th century. There was a a very famous fire that broke out within them and that caused a tremendous amount of damage. Um, and so you see in correspondence, uh, during the 1820s and then 1830s, um, you see British merchants in particular, increasingly complaining about the confines of these spaces and, uh, Mm. their desire to, to essentially to have more room, to have more space. And so in that sense, Shanghai and also Hong Kong, of course, um, accommodated those, uh,
0: That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Mm, mm. But it's interesting, yeah, that even that notwithstanding the the, <laughs> the kind of atmosphere of uh, what they then built in some of these places still had a, a sort of, yeah, as you say, slightly fortified quality to them. Um, but as we move through uh, into the next couple of chapters of the book, I think you highlight in some ways why uh, it might've been seen as necessary because certainly um, uh, resistance from uh, local populations uh, who were, you know, often just as uh, mad at the uh, Qing dynasty as they were at the foreign colonists and occupants um, as, uh, in, in terms of being, you know, mounting rebellions and so on, was a feature of life in, in Shanghai. And so um, uh, you kind of draw out uh, what the fate of the city was under the attacks, for example, of uh, a, a group called the, the Small Sword uh, Society, was it? A kind of uh, a small localized uprising and also the much larger, uh, well, it, arguably the biggest civil conflict, most deadly civil conflict ever to have uh, occurred in the world, right? They, people say the Taiping Rebellion. Um, so how did these things uh, affect how, how the project of building Shanghai uh, un, uh, sort of unfolded? Um, and in particular, I would be interested to see or to hear how the population of the city kind of shifted under the uh, influence of uh, actual kind of uh, threat from armed groups.
2: Yeah. So, um, both the small sword society and then the, and then the, um, the repercussions or the reverberations of the Taiping rebellion had a, had consequential effects on, um, Shanghai's development, particularly in relationship to the integration of the, of the foreign settlements. Um, initially, uh, when British merchants first arrived in Shanghai, they actually, uh, had hoped, uh, some of them at least had hoped to live within the Chinese city walls. Um, in part because that afforded a degree of um, uh, of access to Chinese merchants, which they could use to establish networks and develop their own businesses. But this, the city was um, so congested and, and it was, uh, working uh, within the city was so difficult that they um, quickly moved out to the north of the Chinese city walls and established the British settlement. And there they had more room, of course, and more space. And that was also... Um, in the interests of the Qing government, who wanted to isolate and segregate the Chinese population from the non-Chinese uh, population. And so mm. a principle, a policy of segregation was established by in which uh, no Chinese residents except for those who are working for these merchants could live within the British settlement. Um, the French concession, too, uh, was um, technically segregated, although because it it was essentially sandwiched in between the British settlement and the Chinese city. It was within much more intimate proximity of the Chinese city itself. And so there, there was some um, overflow taking place between the two sites, even prior to the small swords rebellion and the, um, the type, the type, the the small swords uprising and the Taiping rebellion. Mm. But with both of those events, which involved the, um, the kind of occupation and extreme um, uh, disruption of, of daily life in the, within the Chinese city Um, essentially an influx of, of Chinese residents into both uh, all three of the foreign settlements uh, prompted this uh, this kind of spontaneous integration of, of, of the, of the places. And that came with a variety of different negotiations and debate over uh, whether whether that segregation should be, whether that integration should be um, embraced and how it should be regulated. And in the end, architecture actually emerged as a, as a kind of mediating um, agent of a sort in which um, there was integration within the foreign settlements, but through the establishment of, of things like building codes, a certain degree of distance and distinction could be established between the the foreign population and the, the, the Chinese population, as it were.
1: Right, right. And in terms of the actual constructive actions that occurred in the wake of uh, some of these rebellions, I mean, you highlight can, kind of commemorative um, uh, actions, for example, the uh, erection of memorials to uh, British and French uh, people who died in conflict with some of these uh, armed groups. Um, and uh, how how did the shape of the city change uh, in 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 response to that, not just in terms of integrating and regulating the population, but also kind of, uh, I guess, symbolising a, a a new kind of governance and assertion of um, of of power over that area by the people who were kind of living there.
2: Yeah, these a uh, 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 new um, spatial type essentially emerges. This public memorial um, out of both of these two violent episodes, uh, with the loss of life. There's desire on the part of foreign residents to commemorate and memorialize what's happened, um, and so uh, uh, Western practices of of public monument design and construction begin to take place. Of course, there's there's an existing Chinese tradition. Um, of public commemoration of, of tragedies through the, the erection, for example, of Pilo, these ceremonial archways within parts of the city um, or certainly within specific temples, Confucian temples or Buddhist temples, there's uh, a certain uh, worship and acknowledgement of, of um, you know, memorial events. But with the construction mm-hmm. of these specific monuments, you begin to see the emergence of this this kind of broader, bigger public consciousness that um, uh, transcends in some ways, the the physical parameters or boundaries of each of the the quarters of of Shanghai, which at this point in time consists of the international settlement, which has been formed by the British and American settlements joining together, uh, the French concession, and then the the walled Chinese city. So I, I was able to find in some of my archival digging um, these not only the the design and construction of some of these memorials but also public a, a degree of public pageantry and events that took place in which there were participants from various segments of of the Shanghai public uh, in in these these um, public demonstrations and, and ceremonies so that was very interesting to me and and precedes actually existing scholarship that that um, that argues for, The emergence of a kind of transnational community in shanghai uh in the Mm. late uh the late 18 uh, late 19th century the 1890s or so um that Mm. these these seem to be events that preceded those events by by at least two decades
1: right no i think it's it's really fascinating to see that uh spatial sort of reflection of of what you also chart as a a greater level of um integration and the kind of Or or some kind of integration and the and the the emergence of a new public, both as a, uh, I guess human kind of corporate entity, but also as something that is reflected in 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 public space and the Mm -hmm. like. Um, But as you say, with this kind of increasing contact between populations, um, in some ways, I guess the burden for uh, segregating things had to shift towards the governance end of the spectrum rather than necessarily the demarcation side of things. So if people were no longer going to be living in totally separate zones or or the Ching walled city, for example, then, as you say, regulations and things were introduced to kind of keep people separated and often, uh, you know, on very sort of stark racial lines. Um, so uh, sort of as we move into the latter half of the book, um, how do you kind of conceive of this uh, new uh, sort of set of, of regulations and regimes and things like uh, the, yeah the professionalization of architecture uh influencing the uh, makeup of, of the city um i mean who were the architects of uh, of of the, the, the city of shanghai at this point in the latter part of the 19th century um and how did that kind of change as these new regulations were introduced
2: yeah so the um the first uh, professionally trained architects in shanghai are um are kind of av- often masonic affiliated uh again british engineers who are often sent to uh asia by foreign mercantile companies and they are responsible for the the building of uh a lot of the the first mercantile spaces and and infrastructural projects that we see in a place like shanghai things like um the construction of um like waterways uh and bridges and things and so they have a degree of expertise that is new uh, within, within the city. Of course, there's, there's a, an entire existing um, construction industry that's, that's uh, Chinese produced. Um, and there are, um, I mean, incredibly talented uh, craftsmen uh, and designers on, on the part of uh, the Chinese building industry. But over time, as these two factions begin to interact with each other, they, uh, begin to compete with each other. And so this interesting discourse on expertise begins to emerge in the 1870s into the 1880s. Um, and, uh, a number of what could be termed, I guess, architectural entrepreneurs begin to arrive in the city from other parts of Asia, uh, and other parts of, of the world. And there's, um, eventually an effort to kind of professionalize the architecture industry, um, Within the foreign community, and this is in part, I think, in response to not only to the, the cosmopolitanism of the foreign community, but also to this tension with with the Chinese um, building industry as well. Mm, mm. So that's uh, that that element of expertise is, I think, one way in which we see uh, the power dynamics of Shanghai uh, begin to change and begin to filter out into other aspects of architecture. Um, there's also the emergence of, of social clubs, which are segregated, of course, to specific segments of the population. And there are buildings that are constructed to support these specific organizations. And so that's another way that architecture is participating to kind of the informal segregation taking place uh, within the city. Um,
1: mm. and, and you talk about the kind of attitudes towards um, both this figure of the the Chinese builder um uh, again in the sort of line with this uh racializing uh I guess uh, yeah segregationary sort of dynamics that were going on I mean I you know I think the thing that uh probably almost all listeners and possibly almost all people uh may have heard of with any interest in China is this kind of iconic no Chinese or dogs uh horrendous signs and you know maybe that, uh, this was um Particularly, fragrant, flagrant example, but it was somewhere that you know some some dynamics that were playing out across the city. Um, so, you know, how were how are these kind of actual people who were doing the building viewed? Um, and then, uh, additionally, uh, you you go into some detail about how actual stylistic eclecticism and the kind of combination of, uh, I guess, Chinese styles with more European ones um, was was kind of seen as both, I guess, in some ways appealing and 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 in some ways interesting to. Uh, foreign architects, but also somehow threatening. Uh, could you say something about those, those kind of, uh, you know, again, so racializing dynamics?
2: Yeah. So the, the um, stereotyping of the Chinese builder as a kind of inscrutable character, someone who lacked um, uh, both the skills necessary to construct uh, well-built architecture, but also lacked some of the um, ethics of building um the, the 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 notion of of um carpenters as being duplicitous in a way and cunning and trying to cut corners all of all of these emerge within these racially charged dynamics of the of the building industry in shanghai at the turn of the century um and they become um uh particularly charged by f- foreign architects who feel that their um their expertise is being challenged and threatened and, um, there's rivalries and tensions taking place within the Chinese building industry, uh, largely split along kind of local and non-local guilds that, that plays an additional role in this and insofar as um, builders and craftsmen from Guangzhou are often more willing to work with foreign clients and, and foreign architects uh, in part because of the history, the longer history of that city. Um mm. Uh, or the the longer history I should say of of the foreign presence in that city uh, and so those uh, those carpenters were often in some ways seen as more reliable somehow um, but uh, over the course of the the at the turn of the century and over the course of the early nineteen hundreds there's um, all of these different um, kind of this factionalism that begins to develop plays out in interesting ways through the architecture itself where you see uh, as you said, an, in, an increasingly kind of eclectic um, uh, style emerging within Shanghai, where um, Chinese builders are appropriating quote unquote Western uh, uh, ornamental uh, motifs and, and decoration. Um, there's an effort on the part of uh, several tea houses within Shanghai that cater to Chinese clients to kind of appropriate foreign. Um, uh, fixtures and foreign elements to their architecture to kind of create a, an additional atmosphere of exoticism to, and mm. to appeal to a, a, a Chinese consumer class. Um, but that also works on the other side of the equation where you have f- f- foreign residents who are kind of appropriating Chinese aesthetics and kind of orientalizing themselves as it were with, with
1: costume and with, with specific architectural motifs. Um mm. Yeah, and you kind of point out how this has a double edged sword kind of quality to it, right? Where it seemed to embody both, uh, 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 I don't know, in this racially charged atmosphere, as you point out, a kind of pollution of certain pure European, I guess, aesthetics and ideals, um, but also, you know, uh, at the same time, perhaps represents the aspirational kind of cosmopolitanism of a, a place which has this sort of diverse. Uh, population and and kind of unique cosmopolitan quality. Um, But moving on, uh, if there is, you know, a sort of Shanghai style, which has emerged by, I guess, the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, um, uh, this plays a kind of growing role, I I think you highlight, uh, as the Qing dynasty gives way to uh, the Republican era in China. Um, And so how did, the kind of new political regime after 1911 1912 the foundation of the republic uh, kind of digest or make use of this uh, architectural legacy and, and inheritance that, that that was there in shanghai
2: yeah no that's it that's a a great question um with the establishment of the uh, of the the guomindang and and specifically the republican government in shanghai itself all of these questions of legitimacy and territorial sovereignty uh of course remain as as important vital considerations and the um the Kuomintang, uh, government is very much engaged and interested in in bringing Shanghai back within the fold of the Chinese nation as it were and architecture i think and and broader urban planning strategies are all deployed to project or to suggest uh Uh, an element of Republican authority over a city that um, in fact was very much a kind of uncontrolled, sprawling, diverse, complex, again, this word cosmopolitan environment. Um, Mm. And so the, the use of architecture specifically, I think in the use of the greater Shanghai plan, which is an effort literally to kind of, to move the physical center of Shanghai northward to, to move it out of uh, uh, foreign settlements and into Tabula Rasa, as it were, um, mm. that
1: becomes maybe the most notable uh, example of
2: of that effort.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and in terms of how much of that plan, which um, I think you sort of yeah point out was was drawn up there in the in the early Republican period. I mean, how much was that was that successfully realised? Um, I mean, you, you highlight kind of. Again simultaneously occurring uh, infrastructural and transport developments, for example, the introduction of new 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 roads and a tram system through the French concession and so on mm. um, what, what, what kind of spatial transformations were brought about by that particular plan and what what were kind of just ongoing uh, i guess uh, somewhat yet yeah, improvised and chaotic acts uh, which unfolded because of the interaction of this kind of multiplicity of of populations
2: um, well, the seeds of the plan lie in a in a, a project developed and published by Sun Yat-sen to uh, to, to develop Shanghai uh, uh, and to create essentially a new port for Shanghai that is sent that again um, removes the the commercial control of the city f- from the the grips of the foreign powers and um, kind of reempowers the uh, the republican government and so. The plan is to move uh, the municipal center of the city and to create a new uh, port uh, uh, north along um, uh, the, the, the river beyond um, the existing foreign settlements. And it's an incredibly ambitious undertaking um, that uh, becomes very difficult and ultimately impossible to realize uh, due to the kind of chronic um, uh, misadministration of the of the city, and also just the lack of funds, and of course mm-hmm. all of the uncertainties associated with uh, Japanese invasion of China in the uh, early 1930s, and the, the kind of uh, encroaching Japanese army uh, southwards down towards Shanghai. And so, as as the plan is it kind of slowly materializes, building by building, there's this um, kind of this. Uh, you know, this is undoubtedly hindsight, but there seems to be this kind of tragedy, this tragic ending inscribed within the architecture from its from its beginnings. It's it's such an ambitious plan um, that is so disconnected from the existing city that ultimately it um, uh, becomes a kind of island unto itself and is uh, mm. goes unrealized. But but then becomes the civic center of the of the the occupying uh,
1: Japanese government during World War II. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, I mean, some some spatial changes and kind of significant uh, alterations did occur. Nevertheless, right, and it's at this point or this rough period when uh, the, those city walls that we mentioned right at the beginning uh, did kind of get torn down and and removed as a as, as a symbol of, of separation and perhaps in the Republican government's eyes a symbol of a kind of older Qing. Uh, order of things. Um, at what point did they go, and what were the sort of debates around demolishing the walls and and, and the reasons for their eventual destruction?
2: Yeah, that's actually a, really an earlier moment. Um, the The Shanghai the city walls are are torn down over a period of a year, eighteen months, two years uh, in 1912. So, with the fall of the Qing Empire uh, and then mm-hmm. the establishment of the New Republic of China, um, <clears throat> there is. An effort on the part of Chinese, uh, the, the Shanghai, the Chinese bu- business community, to open the city up. There's a there's a belief that the that the city walls have unduly limited the commercial potential of the city, and there's also, of course, emerging discourses about public hygiene and the the need for light and air uh, to infuse um, urban environments for the betterment of, of the, the broader uh, health of the of the public. And so the, um, the decision is made to tear down the city wall, which essentially, um, connects the historical Chinese city with the, with the French concession and the international settlement much more fluidly. Um, and it's mm. much, it's much easier than to travel between these, these various sections of the city. So that, that's a conversation and a debate happening, um, yeah, between 1912, 1913, and it radically changes the Chinese city's, uh, Status relative to the other, uh, municipalities or the municipal governments within Shanghai. Um, the greater Shanghai plan then emerges, uh, 15 years later in 1929, right. 1930. Uh, but it very much comes out of, I think this, this conversation about the, the status and the position of the Chinese city and the Chinese municipality
1: relative to the foreign settlements. Hmm. Mm. And I guess, yeah. I mean, kind of. Uh, finally, sort of drawing on that. That yeah. That impetus of of, of openness and a, and a new vision for China as a as a nation and with a place in the world and you know, kind of modernization as a as a sort of liberatory ideal, a liberationist idea, as, as you point out. Um. What 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 was then kind of the role envisioned for Shanghai on the kind of global stage uh, as a as a laboratory for training i guess chinese architects to represent the nation and 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 as also as a kind of um showcase i guess for uh this newly competent china how how did that kind of uh play out as a new narrative for the city
2: well in part because there were existing foreign practices already at work within shanghai uh the city became a, a magnet for young talented chinese architects who had been trained in japan um europe the united states who upon returning back to China then moved to Shanghai to work for some of these foreign firms. Um, some of them also then established their own practices uh, within the city. Um, Shanghai was you know, one of the, the largest, m- most commercially active cities in China at the time. Of course, Guangzhou, Tianjin, these were also cities um, that appealed to Chinese architects, but Something about i think the the architectural culture of shanghai and and the um the uh, opportunities available there were incredibly appealing to to young chinese designers um and given the the kind of nationalist uh spirit that pervaded the place um it undoubtedly had an impact upon how Chinese architects conceived of their work relative to the struggles of the young Chinese nation state and um, very much contributed to debates and discussions being had within the Chinese architectural community about what, what constituted a modern Chinese architecture, what constituted Mm. the modern Chinese architect. Um, And you see uh, organizations being established by these young architects, engineers, planners, all committed to professionalization, but also much more broadly to, um the kind of defense and the development of of a strong
1: uh, chinese nation mm, mm. And, and you uh, i guess in the kind of final closing chapter highlight some of the uh, gl- global spread of of that new mission uh, to uh, international exhibitions and and the the kind of place that um yeah shanghai and shanghai architects then projected uh, or had in the world as a projection of, of Chinese uh, emerging status, um, and so on. But anyway, Cole, that's a fantastic um, kind of uh, conversation. I think about the about the book, and, and uh, I think uh, it's one that uh, contains many, many details that we were sadly not able to deal with in this discussion, but which uh, I would heartily encourage listeners to uh, to, to go looking for uh, by picking up the book itself. Um, but uh, having taken up. A decent chunk of your time. Um, before we let you go, I'd just like to ask uh, what sort of our, our traditional final question, which is, what is it you've got uh, on the go at the moment, um, following on from this project?
2: Yeah, a lot of these issues and questions involving um, sovereignty, extraterritoriality, the role of architecture, and its participation in in these moments of political, uh, economic change. The They also inform some of the work that I'm doing now. Um, I've just completed a book that looks at architecture in China during the late Mao and post Mao periods. So essentially trying to understand how architecture is contributing to the reform, the opening up and reform era. Um, Mm. And there during the 70s and then uh, through the 80s, uh, particularly after 1978, uh, you begin to see architecture Really again playing an, an active role in the transformation of Chinese society as the party begins to embrace more market oriented economic policy, um, whether it's the construction of international hotels, the establishment of course of special economic zones but also changes in how architects were practicing um, in the 1980s uh, new discourses about postmodernism all of all of these um, architectural elements I see as really crucial if understudied components to, to reform itself. So Mm. that's a book that I'm literally in the process of, of revising and, and wrapping up now. And I hope that will be out, um, uh, next year. Fantastic. Um, and then I also have two projects that are not fully baked yet, but one of which looks at, um, China's architectural history, An engagement with the African continent after 1949. Um, Mm. So taking taking what's happening today, where of course there's uh, a lot of conversation about uh, Chinese infrastructural projects in numerous countries around Africa, trying to understand the moment, the contemporary moment as having a history and having a context that actually goes back to uh, the late 1950s and early 1960s, where Mao and the party are beginning to um, uh, court, if you will, newly decolonized African countries and uh, young charismatic African leaders and architecture becomes a tool in that process. Um, so that's that's something that I'm just beginning to outline and understand now. And then in light of what's happening in Hong Kong and has happened over the last year, uh, I'm at work on uh, what will be, I hope, a book-length study of Hong Kong's built environment, a kind of critical architectural history of the city filtered through
1: this lens of of crisis and uncertainty. Fantastic. Well, I think those all sound in their own ways (laughs) incredibly valuable uh, new uh, examinations of real kind of pivotal uh, junctures uh, in in recent Chinese history and, and indeed in contemporary China, so uh, we'll look forward very much to uh, getting getting hands on all of them as and when they appear. Um, but in the meantime, Cole, uh, thank you very much for appearing on the show today. It's been uh, really wonderful talking to you. Thank you, Ed. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate all of your questions. Uh, well, uh, thank you, and thank you, listeners, too, for listening as ever to new books in East Asian studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.